what a glorious or joyful afternoon each of us have been able to enjoy just to be able to come back and on an occasion like this one tonight. God has granted us with health and that things are as well with us as they are. Indeed, as we've enjoyed God's goodness and for that we prayed a moment ago, might we also reflect on the goodness and grandness of the wonderful nature of His Word. This very night, as we consider one of the interesting facets found in the heart of the Old Testament, let me encourage you that a moment ago in our hearing was read from that interesting text in 2 Samuel 14. And as we consider that for a moment, you may go ahead and be turning to that or have it in mind. We're going to study a lesson titled The Woman of Tekoa, Lessons from a Wise Woman. May I submit to you that one of the most interesting and at the same time the most powerful features of the Bible is the fact that the story of truth is told in real life characters by the events, the activities, and the matters of their lives. The Bible would have been a very different book had the God of heaven selected to simply state to you and me in factual character the things he wanted to reveal. Do this, don't do that. But rather, God saw fit to house His truth in the form of real life people who walked upon this earth just as you and me. And as the story of their life was told, inspired truth was revealed to them or through them. And you and I have that as a marvelous blessing today. Some of the characters in the Bible resound with immediate lessons that you and I have often reflected upon. For example, I've just selected at least a few of them. Think about those good and powerful lessons that we might have been able to draw from, say, the sterling character of Joseph. However, that character was beset before you and me in Genesis chapters 37 and following in such a way that it's memorable and interesting. But not only that, what about the steadfast courage of Daniel? Where in 12 scintillating chapters, the fact of Daniel's life sets before you and me real-life lessons of bravery, courage, and dedication. But we might easily turn to the New Testament and remember the sterling commitment of a man named Paul who day after day, it seemed, gave his life as an open testimony to the God of heaven and not for a moment did he shirk from that duty once he became a servant of the Lord. But just as easily as the lessons of the Bible by characters that present good lessons, we might remember there are also those that present lessons not from a godly perspective, but on the other hand, from an evil or bad perspective. Might we remember Diotrephes in the book of Third John and the dictatorial arrogance with which he in fact beset the church in that area? Might we also remember the foolish choice of Demas in 2 Timothy 4 verse 10 who chose not to walk with Paul any longer? That list, of course, could go on and on also selected or chose to add to that that very infamous woman in the Old Testament named Jezebel, who by the introduction of idolatry into Israel, her name would forever linger as a woman of great wickedness. The point, though, that I'm attempting to make and that each of us can readily appreciate is that these are real people who walk this earth. And in the way that they walked, they chose to set marvelous examples of either that which was good or that which was evil. But just as surely as many of these better known characters walk the earth, there also were many who are lesser known but nonetheless important because they're inspired in the sense that they're members of the book of God. It is to one of those characters we'll turn our attention tonight. 
In fact, a lady whose name is not even given in the Bible, she simply is called the woman of Tekoa. But she was called a wise woman. And so at the outset of the lesson tonight, let us rehearse the scene at which she enters God's record. And in the second part of the lesson, let's use the interesting statement she made to point you and me toward facts of truth that we should always remember. In 2 Samuel chapters 13 and 14, we come to this very interesting setting and scene in the Old Testament. David at this point was a person whom we well recall. He was that second of the kings of Israel. And David, of course, was a man who did not always act wisely. In fact, we might remember that he had several wives and he had many children by those wives. For the story tonight, three of the children will be very important. David's oldest son was named Amnon, and that son was born to a lady to his wife named Ahinoam. However, his other, one of his other wives named Maaka also bore him several children, and one of the sons was named Absalom, and one of the daughters of Maaka was named Tamar. And hence we have these three children. Absalom and Tamar were full brother and sister, and Amnon was a half-brother to each one of them. All that being said, we might remember though that Amnon was infatuated with Tamar. He had a great desire and interest in her, and amazingly enough, he concocted a plan with the aid of Jonadab, one of his friends, as far as a means by which he could have her. He realized that David would never give his consent, of course, for him to pursue her in any way that would be to his liking, and thus he concocted this deception. In fact, it went like this. He pretended to be sick. And as he made that pretension, he of course asked David to send Tamar to come to his house and to fix a meal for him and to help him to feel better and to get over his illness. David consented, and in fact Tamar came and prepared a meal for, for Amnon to partake of. But in the course of that and following... Amnon forced himself upon her and raped his half-sister. In the awfulness of that deed and the wickedness with which it came upon here, not only the children of Israel, but David's household in particular, David was furious. Angry was he, in fact, but that anger, of course, did not go any further than to realize the anger did not lead to any direct consequences at that point. However, in Absalom's mind, something else began to brew. Revenge, hatred, anger, so much so that for two years he concocted a revengeful plan by which he would revenge himself, or his sister, I should say, of what Amnon had done to her. So for two years he worked a very interesting, deceptive, and powerful plan. The time came for its fruition. The time was of sheep shearing, and it bailed he, in fact, asked all of David's sons to come there and enjoy a gathering with him. And so David gave his consent, and all of the sons, including Amnon, came there to Baal Hazor. As they came, the real purpose was not to celebrate the sheep shearing. The real purpose was to do nothing other than to take revenge upon what had occurred two full years earlier. And thus, on this occasion, Amnon was slain. David's oldest son was killed. It was for the revenge of what he had done to Tamar two full years earlier. After the scene of this murder, 
after the scene of the taking of Amnon's life, Absalom flew, if you will. He fled into exile to Geshur. And there he remained three full years. An outlaw, if you will. The law, of course, would mandate that slaughter or killing among God's people was not an approved thing. So much so here that while in exile, he dared not come back. For who knows what would befall him. However, being away, David still loved his son. David loved Absalom. Oh, how he loved Absalom. Interesting that the Scriptures portray, despite the fact of what he had done to Amnon, David's heart, and we quote from 2 Samuel 13, verses 37 and following, David's heart was toward Absalom. He longed to bring him home. He longed to bring him back and remake the family that he cherished and loved, but his sense of recognition of what Absalom had done would not let him bring Absalom back home. So they stayed separated for three long years. It was at this point that chapter 14 opens. We can easily see in the recognition of the facts. As chapter 14 tells us, Joab, David's commander-in-chief, had a brilliant idea, or so he thought. He desired to find a way to ease David's tumultuous mind. He wanted to bring Absalom home. He wanted to reconcile and reunite them, but he needed a plan in order to accomplish it. David, as the king, the mightiest man in the empire, one just simply does not go before him and say, David, you need to do this, or you ought to do that. And thus he elicited the services of a wise woman in Tekoa. As chapter 14 unfolds before us, Joab proceeded to bring this lady to Jerusalem. Now Tekoa was a little city about 11 miles south of Jerusalem, and as he brought her, Joab gave her some words that she was supposed to speak to David. Here's the way the story went. She began to come before David, and she relayed to him the fact that she was a widow. Her husband had, been, had, had died. But what's more, she had two sons, but in the field they became upset and angry with one another and involved themselves in a fight, and one of them killed the other one. As a result and as a consequence of that, her family members wanted to kill the other son because he was guilty of murder. But this lady petitioned David, my coal would be quenched if that happened. I would have no seed remaining. I have no husband any longer. These are the only two sons I have. One of them is dead, and if the other one is now killed, I will have no longer any coal to maintain the name of my husband. She petitioned David, and as king, therefore being judge, he responded to her with great tenderness. And he said, Not a hair of your son's head will be hurt or removed. David not only heard her plea, but so powerful was he in response to it, he proclaimed that by my word as king, nothing shall happen to your son. Your family will not take his life. It was at this point, though, that the lady said, King, may I speak one thing further? She had told a story, and she had been able to achieve David's earnest interest. He was certainly on her side. He appreciated her story and the interest of her heart. But now in Second Samuel chapter 14, listen to what she says to David very bluntly. Beginning in verse 13, And the woman said, Wherefore then hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king doth speak this thing as one which is faulty. 
in that the king doth not fetch home again his banished. For we must needs die, nor is water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person, yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. As this lady made that statement to David, he perceived immediately that the very story that she had told and the very thing that he had responded was such that it really was directed to him. There was a lady who made statement that of her two sons, one was killed, but he had given direction that the other would be protected to reconcile the union and bring him home even though he had killed his brother to protect him. But now consider David's situation. His son Absalom had been sent off into exile and for three years he hadn't come home. He had been banished. And thus the lady's words were, David, you are faulty in that you have stated to protect my son who is also in need of banishment. Shouldn't you protect your son? Shouldn't you bring him home just as you've stated you'd protect my son? David, if you will, was hit between the eyes with the logic of the woman. He understood that Absalom too was banished, but for no good reason, and thus he too ought to be brought home where he belonged. And as all of that took place, David immediately recognized that Joab was behind this. And as much as that was true, he gave Joab commandment to go and bring Absalom home. Bring him home. This is where he needs to be. He's my son. He needs to be in the palace. Interestingly enough, that took place in that Absalom was brought to Jerusalem, but for two years he did not see his father. An interesting way to reconcile, don't you think? He brought him home, and for two years he and David didn't see one another. Finally, at the end of that, as chapter 15 opens, they will see one another, but it's not under the best of circumstances. But that will be for another lesson and for another study. But for tonight, as we have looked at the background or the setting of this woman of Tekoa, may we notice what she stated and three lessons that will be useful for you and me as we consider our walk in faith as well. As we turn to these, consider again verse number 14. This wise woman, as she came before David, made this remarkable statement. For we must needs die, and are as water spilled on the ground. Isn't it interesting that here was a lady, again nameless from the point of view of the Bible, and yet she uttered a tremendous truth, one that David appreciated, because after all, we all must needs die. Isn't life a beautiful and wonderful blessing? In its greatness, words often fail to describe and appreciate that which is mine and yours. After all, this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118, verse 24. And do we not read in Genesis 1, verse 26, the marvelous refrain of how on that sixth day of God's creative activity, He said, Let us make man in our image. You and I bear the likeness, the image of the almighty, august, awesome God of heaven. That fact alone is a tremendous and high compliment to the human family. Nothing like that was ever said of an animal. Nothing like that was ever said to an animal. And yet you and I are made in God's image. Life in the flesh is a beautiful thing. We are born into this world and as such we are able to walk through from cradle to grave 
beholding God's handiwork, seeing the things He's fashioned and made, and appreciating beautiful things like love and companionship and the beautiful eyes of our children. As we appreciate all of that, we must never forget the fact those are blessings from God in His goodness to you and me. To state all that, though, does quickly remind us, and we really need no great reminder because our life in the flesh doesn't last all that long. It's brief, only a little while, and time and again the sacred writers in the Scriptures turn our attention to that fact. Many on our earth choose, apparently, to think that they'll live forever. They seem to live about their ways and never give any thought to what lay ahead, specifically to the fact of what may be after death. But time and again, God reminds us so that we know this life is not permanent. And as the old song says, this old world is not our home. Notice what the lady said again. We must needs die. There in verse number 14, as the lady made that statement, the brevity of life is straightforwardly within her words, and think about how David himself would state that later as he approached the time of his own death. In 1 Kings 2, verse 2, I must go the way of all the earth. None of us are exempt from death. If the Lord delays His coming, all of us at one point will meet the grim reaper. He will come toward you and me. The fact of whether or not death will come is not the issue, is it? We must needs die. That brevity in the Bible is stated in a number of ways, and it's not negative, is it? It's the fact of the quality of the life that we do live while here that determines its utmost bounty and abundance. The marvelous fact is, Joshua 2 stated, I must go the way of all the earth in Joshua 23:14. Notice how even Job remarked of that very fact himself in Job chapter 12. Perhaps these points, though, quickly remind us of that interesting scene, that pointed fact of Hebrews 9, verse 27. The statement therein made has filled all of our minds, no doubt at some point or another. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. The appointment of death is a certain thing, and this lady made note of that fact. We must needs die, but notice what else she said. And it's one of the most interesting metaphors found anywhere in 2 Samuel. We are like water spilt on the ground. Maybe all of us have had that unfortunate circumstance of spilling some liquid with which we were concerned, be it water, milk, something like that. Once that is spilled, can all of it be recovered? Can it be brought back into the vessel and utilized for the original purpose? Once that water is spilt on the ground, it either evaporates or soaks into the soil, but it is lost for the original purpose in the vessel, isn't it? We are like water spilt on the ground in the sense that once death has come our way, there is no reliving. We can't go back and redo a single moment. We can't relive a single instant. We can't take back a word we've said. You see, we, as Brother James Watkins has often stated it, life is a one-shot arrangement. We aren't given a second opportunity. In fact, those in various religions around the world often teach something called reincarnation, but the Bible doesn't. We do not relive this life. We're like water spilt on the ground. 
When that lady made that statement to David, he began to think again and reflect upon the character of life. My son Absalom's away from me. I'm miserable. Would I not be better to bring him home, reunite and reconcile, and remake again a family more as it ought to be? After all, we're like water spilled on the ground. That helps us to appreciate and realize that the lady's second remark, and if you would, note that one with me too, ties in somewhat closely with this one. At the end of verse number 13, the king doth not fetch home again his banished. And what a potent question. You have given statement, David, that you would protect my son when he was also banished or in need thereof. Why will you not bring home your banished son? Why will you not give, if you will, a protectorate for him? She, in fact, made the statement earlier in that verse, the king was faulty in this, that he's guilty. Maybe there's something in that for you and I to reflect on as well. David needed to bring Absalom home. He needed to reconcile to his son. And why? Because we're like water spilt on the ground. No second chances. We need to make the most of those moments in life as we're given them, or we may not be given them anymore. And we may not ever be given again opportunities that we've already had. Oh, indeed, the king, she noted to him, he also has a banished he needs to bring home. Doesn't that remind us about the fleeting moments of life and the quality with which we should infuse them? Do you and I go about, in fact, harboring grudges and ill feelings and hatred when all that does is make us miserable? All that does is tarnish and mar the quality of our life. It would be far better to bury that hatchet, wouldn't it? To, in fact, present an attitude of gracious love and to try to harmonize and reconcile rather than to remain miserable in a state of guiltiness or in a state of ill feeling. Paul stated in Romans 12, verse 18, As much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. That's a verse that's often challenged every one of us, I'm sure. As much as life in you, we shouldn't sell ourselves short. Live peaceably with all men. It's true, there are some individuals with whom it's not as easy as it is to live with others. Perhaps on the work site they have a way of aggravating have a way of, in fact, causing you and me to not think the most wholesome of thoughts. Paul said, as much as life in you, we need to rely upon the Lord and strive not to harbor illness, to harbor those feelings that are ugly and mean, to harbor those thoughts that, in fact, are more on the side of Satan than they're on the side of Christ. After all, Paul was that very one who could pray for the very ones who had tried to stone him to death in Acts 14. Jesus was the very one who on the cross could say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That would have been hard for perhaps many ordinary people to do, wouldn't it? To pray for the forgiveness of those who just nailed nails into your hands and feet. To pray for the forgiveness of those who just planted the crown of thorns and pressed it upon your head. And for those soldiers that beaten your back raw in John 19, 1. And yet our Savior had that much concern and that much desire for good feeling that he could pray for their forgiveness. In fact, as we see the life of Jesus, wasn't it always the case he went about doing good, Acts 10, 38? And he showed compassion and love even to those who were downtrodden and beset with affliction and even demon possession. 
That marvelous record of the Good Samaritan challenges us time and again to be ministers of mercy in Luke 10, 25 to 37. The fact is, that man was left for half dead. And yet, this Samaritan showed him the goodness and the favor that he was due because he was one of God's creatures. You and I, too, ought to recognize men fences and not build them. Make that which is good of feelings and not to harbor the ill or the evil. We see then that time and again the Bible challenges us and helps us realize that goodness that emanates from Christianity is a goodness that's deep and is a goodness that in fact is described perhaps in one of the greatest of ways in the Beatitudes our Savior taught in the opening part of Matthew 5. Can you recall some of them? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that are persecuted. Why? For theirs are the ones that will enjoy the kingdom of heaven. The statements therein made challenge us to realize that it's not something that was something to be seen by Christ as good, but rather we need to not harbor those ill feelings. This lady reminded David of that very fact. In fact, the very scene of forgiveness is taught in the Bible. Here, in fact, that's what David needed to do most directly for Absalom, wasn't it? That reconciliation would be accomplished most fully only when there was full forgiveness on the part of David. In fact, isn't that the opposite of building fences and harboring grudges? He noted forgive. Jesus taught many lessons about forgiveness, didn't he? And one of them astounded Peter. In Matthew 18, beginning in verse 22, Peter thought he asked a marvelous question. If my brother sinned against me and asked my forgiveness seven times, do I forgive him? Jesus said, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seven times seventy. Jesus said, your business is to be of a forgiving spirit. If your brother sins against you, regardless of the number of times, it beseeches your forgiveness by virtue of his repentance. Your duty and your responsibility is to act like the Savior and forgive. After all, think about how dependent you and I are upon the forgiveness of God. We offended Him. We violated His will. We were enemies to His name, Romans 5, 8. And yet, despite all that, Paul stated in Ephesians 4.32, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We, as God forgave us, should have an attitude, a perception of forgiveness. That would lead to great harm in our, in our world, wouldn't it? A moment ago, as we prayed together, we prayed for peace among nations. And oh, how we might long for that and wish for that to occur. But so long as men won't forgive, there will be no peace. So long as men are not willing to look upon one another and to compromise on those indifferent matters, and to strive to make peace and harmony, there will be no peace. This lady challenged David with all of these remarks, and indeed, wasn't she wise? But perhaps that does bring us to the third remark we will consider in our lesson tonight. Notice what else this lady said. She also made note in verse number 14, and this is the closing part to that verse, Yet doth he devise means, that his banished be not expelled from him. Oh, how our thoughts are lifted to the heights as we consider what this lady said. Let us 
pay some attention more carefully to the explicit way she stated it. She was speaking about God. God doth devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. We understand that sin is a shameful and despicable thing. There's no other way to describe it. Remember how Jeremiah described that in the days of long ago? Perhaps in all the Old Testament there's no clearer and more vivid description of sin than this one. We lie down in our shame and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even unto this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Notice the verse began by saying we lie down in our shame. The world may try to paint sin as something that's noble, something for which appropriate reasons can be given, something for which it's not as bad as it may seem, but God says it's shameful. No matter what form it takes, it's shameful. Jeremiah made note of that fact, and inasmuch as he said that, we lie down in it. Confusion comes from it too. But as we think about sin and shame and the ungodliness that relates with it, you and I notice that sin separates us from the God that loves us. It drives a wedge from us, between us and Him and makes a chasm that is extremely wide. Isaiah boldly made the statement for God in Isaiah 59 beginning in verse 1. He said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your sins and your iniquities have suffered between you and your God and have hid his face from you that he will not hear. That's what sin does. God is in his holy and noble place, but because of our sin, we walk away from him. And thus, being distant from him, we are without all the goodness he has to offer, all the blessings eternally in our favor. But that puts us back to note, you and I are banished because of our sin we begin to see how the lady tied all this together. Absalom was banished because of the murder he committed. You and I are banished from God because of our sin. But thanks be unto God, He has devised means that His banished be not expelled from Him. If you and I had to rely upon reconciliation due to our own feeble means, there would be no reconciliation. There would be no peace. We have nothing to offer God in response to our sin. However, God in His love dipped down from heaven and sent the only begotten Son to die on that old cross at Calvary and by the blood He shed and the sacrifice He offered. That's the means that God has made that His banished be not expelled from Him. The character then of that reconciliation to draw us back and bring us back to God challenges us evermore to realize it's God's means. The plan of salvation isn't my idea. It's not yours. God sent that down. No man could have come up with that. In its simplicity, it's marked. In its beauty, it's beyond reason. But yet what it presents is unfathomable in many ways. It closes that chasm and reconciles us to God. As God looks down then upon those who have freely availed themselves of the blood of His Son, he sees not Randy and his feeble attempt at righteousness or his ungodly behavior. He sees the precious blood of his Son covering me, covering you. For after all, we read in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, about the fact that unto him became righteousness who knew no sin, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. 
righteousness is as filthy rags, just as is yours. But God set forth His Son, and by those means by which we are not banished any longer, we can be drawn back to God, reconciled to Him, and thus we enjoy all the benefits of that reconciliation. Think about what Adam and Eve enjoyed prior to the sin in the garden. There they enjoyed full communion with God and fellowship with Him. And isn't it interesting? They also enjoyed life with no end. In terms of Genesis chapter 2, we appreciate the fact that they were not going to die. But then sin entered the world and the sentence of death came as a result of that. But notice, you and I spiritually enjoy the same promise. Once we're reconciled to God, Jesus said in John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live again. The amazing thing is that death, that wonderful eternal life is promised to those who to avail themselves of God's means by which they need not be banished any longer. One of the saddest tragedies of all is to think about the choice that many make to remain banished. When David sent Joab with word, Absalom, come home, Absalom came home. He wanted to be back there in Jerusalem. He wanted to be back in the good graces of the king, his father. He went back. The gospel call of invitation is extended, of course, to me today, but they would choose rather to stay banished. Why might people do that? God sent forth His Son in love that they might not be banished any longer. The powerful means by which God sent forth that Son and the means that He made available perhaps does finish our lesson tonight by making note of one final observation. When Absalom came home, I made note earlier that for two long years he and David didn't see one another. They didn't speak. They didn't enjoy fellowship, communion, or the relationship a father should have with his son. We asked then what kind of reconciliation was that, and the answer is not a very complete one. But as we ask now, what about God's reconciliation? Those means that He has devised such that His banish be not expelled from Him, is that a total reconciliation or just partial? When we are able to come into His graces and into His favor, do we still must remain in a distance, or do we come fully home to Him? Can't we be thankful? And can't we be so very gracious in recognizing that Christ's blood doesn't leave a partial chasm? It doesn't leave a partial void that can't be filled. That blood closes it up entirely and brings us to unity with Him. We are heirs of God and join heirs with Jesus. Romans 8, 14-16 It is such that in that union we are drawn near to God through Christ. Ephesians 2, 14-16. The thoughts are so wonderful and so great. Perhaps that final comment made by the lady rushes us on to the final note of the conclusion into the lesson tonight. As we review, notice some of the things we've learned. First, the intriguing nature of the words of this woman of Tekoa. What she stated in the powerful way she stated it. She was able to, in fact, draw David's attention to the very truth of the subject and to bring home Absalom, a very thing David had wanted for so long. But as she made those statements to him, you, we have also noted three lessons that can help us too. We must needs die in ours water spilt on the ground. 
Dear friend, your life is brief. Don't wait too long to obey the Lord. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Proverbs 27.1 Furthermore, given the brevity of life and the powerful nature of it, the lady also said that the king doth need to bring home his banished. You and I too don't need to remain banished when there's no need for it. We don't need grudges and ill feelings and harboring of those things to clutter our life. Finally, she noted that God devised means that His banished be not expelled from Him. Let us never overlook those means, for they are housed in the words of the Gospel, the Gospel of the grace of God, Acts 20, 24. That grace is shed forth to you and me abundantly in the words of life. Have you allowed those words of life to give you life? Have you obeyed the gospel in openness and in freeness and in love to the God who loved you and provided those means for you to come home? If you have never done that tonight, understand that this is what the Christ demands of you. You need to believe in Him. There is no other. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Verse 6 of John 14. He also quickly affirmed that you must believe upon me or else you will die in your sin. John 8, 24. That statement then prompts us to repent. We then realize what those sins have done. They sent my Savior to the cross, taking my place. That sorrow that we have for sin leads to repentance, and in that change of mind, we then desire to confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God and to be buried in baptism that He might wash our sins away. If you've never done that, tonight would be a perfect opportunity, a perfect occasion. But if you have and you've not been true, you've allowed yourself to again be banished. Come back home. There is a second law of pardon. First John 1 verse 7 states it this way, But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ His Son. Cleanseth us from all sin. If you need to come back home tonight, brethren would be happy to pray on your behalf that God would forgive and reinstate you to a blessed place of faithfulness. If we could help you in either, either of those ways tonight, let that be known even now, while together we stand and while we sing.